worship team. Well, good morning, Calvary. Glad to be here. Let's pray before we open the scriptures together this morning. Oh, Lord God, it says in 1 Timothy that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And we ask this morning that you would accomplish this goal in our lives, uh, that love would issue forth from our being because of these three things that you produce in us by your grace. We ask that you would continually grant us a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere and growing faith. And we pray that you would bless your word to us this morning. Amen. Well, it's so good to finally be here. At least half of us are here. Uh, our stuff is still on a truck somewhere. Uh, but that's another story. Um, I thought we would begin our time together by looking at this particular passage of Scripture and talking about the question of what does it mean to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ? What is it all about? Throughout the history of the church and throughout the church as it exists now throughout the whole world, what is it, what's the point of being a part of Christ's church? What's it all about? So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. I'll read it to you. The apostle writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So our new identity in Christ, the Apostle Peter is saying, obligates us to proclaim the excellencies of God. To proclaim the excellencies of God to God himself in worship and to proclaim the excellencies of God to the world in missions. And so what we see in our passage this morning, that God has created this new people in Christ Jesus, and in verse 9, we read these four new names that have been given to us as His people, and we see that these four new names all have one purpose. And then in verse 10, we're exhorted to be ever mindful of these new realities of who we are as God's people. Now, it's always difficult to jump into the middle of a book. Um, we haven't had the context in 1 Peter. But that's all right, so I'll just give you a quick outline. So we're actually in the, First Peter has three parts. We're actually in the very first part of First Peter at the conclusion of it. And this whole first part of First Peter is about reassuring the church about who they are and their identity as the people of God. And in fact, I would encourage you to read all of First Peter. It's not a very long book, very easy to read, a favorite. First Peter is one of my favorite books because it covers so many topics, you read through the book of 1 Peter, so many topics that relate to Christian doctrine, that relate to Christian thinking, that relate to our Christian behavior in the world and with one another. In fact, uh, the uh, church throughout the centuries has seen 1 Peter as one of the favorite books and best books to start discipling people in the faith because of this very reason. So much is covered. And you'll probably find out today why a little bit more if that's the case. It's also one unique, interesting piece about the book of 1 Peter is that it is the most dense book in quotations from the Old Testament. So, no other book in the New Testament is so filled 
with quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. And this is important because if you ever wondered how to interpret the Old Testament faithfully, well, 1 Peter, the apostle, teaches us how to do that in this book. It's a wonderful, wonderful book to study. Now, this last piece that we're in today in verses, uh, actually verse 4 through 10 in chapter 2 is the, is the wrap-up of part 1. But these last two verses, verses 9 and 10, highlight the privilege of being a member of Christ's church and our identity like no other biblical passage does. In fact, these four new names really just say it all. So let's take a look at these. Uh, you've probably noticed some echoes in these verses right here that it reminds you of things in the Old Testament that you might have read or been told about from Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, or from Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21. I'll read those to you in a minute. But they're, they're all over verse 9. It's just basically those Bible verses from the Old Testament put together to apply to the church of Jesus Christ. These terms are rich terms in Old Testament history uh, with the people of Israel as well as the nation of Israel, both in the time of their exodus out of Egypt and in their exile to Babylon and the return from there as well. Very rich terms. But see what the Apostle Peter is doing with them. He is saying they are now the best descriptions of all Christians of all time. Because now these terms are even more fitting for the new covenant people of God than they ever have been in history. This is what Peter's doing. Exodus 19, this is at Sinai when the people are coming out of Egypt. And he says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be, so here are the words, my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. I formed it. For, oops, sorry, I jumped ahead. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is where the apostle is getting it from. Isaiah 43, 21. My favorite verse about the post-exilic period, because Isaiah simply declares, uh, God through him, they are my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. Do you see all of that in verse 9 and 1 Peter as well? It's all there. So let's take a look at these, these new names that the Apostle Peter is giving to the church. First of all, we are a new chosen race in verse 9a. Now, historically, of course, the race is referring to the actual physical descendants of Abraham that God called out. And historically, uh, the word chosen is referring to a very special people, the Israelites, that were called out in the Exodus from Egypt to form a new nation. But the new historical reality that the Apostle Peter is pointing out, that in the fullness of time, there would be a new chosen race would be formed. And it's a sort of a play on words because this race, if you will, will be made up from people from all the racial groups throughout the whole world. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this chosen group, if you will, would be similarly set apart from the rest of humanity, called out from perishing humanity for a special purpose and a special character. Chosen race is such a great term because it just sounds so politically volatile today, doesn't it? To talk about a chosen race. So, I love it. So, 
it could be a socially dangerous term to use this. But then again, maybe that's really some of its power and power for all sorts of good in our world. Because ultimately, the only cure for all the evils of racism in the world is our Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you know, so much of this is actually observable in the world because in my travels throughout the world, especially throughout Asia, Christians uniquely are the ones that are making the most progress in the world. Just go out and look about the real strife in life they are. So, for example, let me tell you a little story. So, I do a lot, of, I have done a lot of training in South Asia. And I always take a bunch of pastors with me to do some of the training of pastors. And, uh, and of course, for many of them, this is their first experience. But my really good friend and partner for the last eight years in South Asia, so I work in a very tribal region, and racism has been a part of that world for centuries. Well, his brother was kidnapped and murdered by the neighboring tribe. It's not unusual. This happens quite frequently, actually. So the question a lot of these pastors have to the American pastors is, so what does forgiveness look like in that situation? How do we move forward? Because we really want to reach all these tribes with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we want them all to join together in the mission together. So how do we do that? And of course, we don't have the answers, and we just talk, and we come up with ideas, and we, we pray together. But often, this kind of a situation takes American pastors by surprise, because in comparison, we don't live in that kind of a world. But back to the main point here, and that is that believers in Christ, we have so much in common with other believers in the world. Our bond is so tight in the Holy Spirit that we actually almost are a new race of people in the world. I hope you find that when you run into other Christians, whether you're on a mission trip or you run into them in another town or another church you're visiting. It's like we have an immediate bond because of the Spirit. And we share a common heritage, what the Apostle Peter is saying, in the line of the faith of Abraham and the obedience of Moses. There's so much to carry over into our New Testament understanding when we read these words, chosen race, in the Old Testament. In fact, you can do it yourself every time you read these in the Old Testament. Because ultimately, this identity is really what matters before God Almighty. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.26 says very explicitly that there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We are one in Christ. We are Abraham's offspring, all of us who have faith, and we are heirs according to the promise. So think about in this, this one phrase that we are a new chosen race, about this strong bond of unity that we share, this commonality that we share as God's people. In fact, the, the apostle would even call us, as the church, a chosen race. And remember the purpose, because the purpose is at the end of verse 9. So the purpose is that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness, the darkness of sin, the bondage of the evil one, into his marvelous light of holiness and grace and knowledge and all such things. So that's the first new name that's given to us. We as God's people, those of us who are in Christ, make up the new chosen race. Second, he's talking about a royal priesthood. He says, you are now 
the new royal priesthood, the churches. So now we, you've probably heard about the fact that, you know, combining the roles of priest and king in the Old Testament, they were kept separate for purposes, very good purposes. But notice royalty here and priesthood here. They were, they were separate roles. They were separate duties, separate callings. But in the Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm, by the way, in the New Testament, it's the most important psalm, it would seem, as you read the New Testament, to the church in the New Testament age is Psalm 110. In fact, Jesus liked to refer to this about himself as well because it speaks about a Messiah and how there would be a unique coupling of these roles where the final king would come and the final priest would come and the roles would be united in him as the Messiah. We've probably read the story about Melchizedek from the time of Abraham. He is a type of the one who was to come and he preceded the Levitical priesthood much superior. The book of Hebrews speaks about this. And we have some prophetic examples in the Old Testament that are giving us a a view to the Messiah. We read about some of the things that David did, even though he was a king, would perform some priestly duties, and Solomon as well, all looking forward to and predicting, even in their offices, of who Jesus Christ would be. Well, here's yet another way that we're made like Christ, sharing in his royalty and sharing in his priestliness, the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 22, speaks about the coming of the Messiah and what would be the outcome of his work. And he says, I will multiply the offspring of David and the Levitical priests for myself. Speaking about the church as the royal priesthood. In fact, if you go to the end of the Bible, in Romans, Revelation chapter 5, we read about this. And the angel sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, speaking of Jesus Christ, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, of course, historically, royal priesthood is referring to a role that the old covenant people of God were supposed to play. Now you read the history, sometimes they did a pretty good job playing that role. Other times they didn't do a very good job playing that role. But now in the new covenant, the new covenant people of God, we play the role much better because we're actually empowered by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the significance of the role today is so much greater and so much larger than it was under the Old Covenant. We have the whole world to reach with the gospel. And our mediatorial role then, if you will, is what priests do, uh, is to the nations and to the world to bring them the gospel and to speak to them about the glories of God and His kingdom. Of course, our royalty is not something we naturally have, as we're speaking in this text this morning. It comes from our relationship to the king of the universe, to Jesus Christ. We truly are his royal sons and daughters and heirs and members of the kingdom. And our priesthood has three dimensions to it, as you read the New Testament. Uh, Our priesthood has a, a relationship to God. Our priesthood has a relationship to the church. And our priesthood has a relationship to the world. So let's look at these briefly. So even in the book of 1 Peter, you'll see this earlier in chapter 2, we offer spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ that are acceptable to God. 
And in that way, we function in our priesthood toward God is to worship Him through giving acceptable sacrifices through Jesus Christ. And that includes many, many things. It includes our praise. It includes our worship. It includes cooperation. It includes the influence of the Holy Spirit on our lives and transforming us. These are offerings that we give up to God in worship for His glory is to live a life pleasing to Him and doing His will. That's one dimension of the priesthood. The second dimension is that we're to serve one another in the church and to pray for one another and to minister to one another. It was very popular in the Reformation period, we, we know the doctrine well today, called the priesthood of all believers. I hope you've heard that term before. But the priesthood of all believers means that uh, we don't have a human priest other than Jesus Christ. He's the last and final one. There aren't any more. Read the book of Hebrews. It's very clear. Okay, so, but we minister to one another then, for we're all made priests to serve one another. And when we talk about this term, it's not about removing authority structures in the church. So often in America, I've found the doctrine of the priesthood of believers is just an excuse for asserting individualism and sinfulness in that dimension. But it's not about imposing our personal wills or our preferences or our ideas on one another in the body but it's to serve one another in order and under the authorities that God has designed. So we offer spiritual sacrifices up to God as priests, as He's made us a new royal priesthood. We serve one another as priests in the body of Christ. And thirdly, we exist for the benefit of the world. This comes out especially at the end of the book of Romans. Because we have access to God through Jesus Christ. And so we declare the gospel to the world with our mouths, and we live it out before them in our lives, and we bless the world in wonderful ways by the way we serve the world for goodness. St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said, in ancient times, speaking of the Old Covenant, he said, only one high priest was anointed, but now all Christians are anointed. So think about the extraordinary honor that comes along with being part of the royal priesthood of new believers the expectation of the duty that we all have in serving our King. And remember, the purpose is at the end of verse 9. The purpose is to declare the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's why we are now members of the royal priesthood. The third name that's given to us is holy nation. Verse 9c now, historically, the national identity, actually, of the Hebrew people was formed during the Exodus. That's when it started, and they were called out of Egypt, and God forms a nation out of them, and it all gets uh, ratified in Exodus 19, right? At Mount Sinai, you get the terms of the covenant, uh, what they're going to be, and in fact, the book of the covenant is Exodus 19, then 19 all the way through chapter 24. That's a good thing to read as well. Because then you'll understand in this ratification what God was doing with these people. Well, that's the historical term, the phrase this term refers to historically. But the Apostle Peter is saying that now we, as Christians, are considered a new holy nation. Again, another provocative term these days. <clears throat> But the new nation here in Scripture cannot be identified with any contemporary earthly human political structure. 
that would be the hugest possible mistake that anyone could ever make. And some have made it, so don't think you're immune. So becoming a member of the kingdom of God comes through Jesus Christ, and we're made citizens of heaven. And we're a member of an eternal nation that has yet to rise in prominence in this world. But it will. Because when Jesus Christ the King comes back to establish His kingdom, then we will rise. And we will inherit our land, and the whole earth will be ours, just as Jesus promised. The meek shall inherit the earth. So our national allegiance is to be given first and foremost to this nation. Our first interest as Christians is always the kingdom of God. It's always the welfare of the church and its progress in the world. And this explains why at various times in history, and even today, that Christians under various structures in, in the kingdoms of man can be accused of treason. Even in the time especially of the writing of First Peter. Or can be termed enemies of the people or enemies of the state. Although Christians, the irony of course, is tend to make the best citizens within almost any political state you can imagine or any system. And I have spent time teaching pastors and Christians and Christian leaders in various places throughout the world from both ends of the spectrum where they live in a very open society and the gospel seems to be able to be freely expressed without fear. And I've also taught in underground places where it is the oppression is palpable. But all the Christians seem just as happy in the Holy Spirit and they love Jesus and they don't really care because their number one allegiance is to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And so they're going to do whatever it takes and suffer whatever the consequences are to get the gospel out and to glorify him. So we know, of course, that the fears of people and authorities are really unnecessary. I mean, Christians aren't particularly interested in, in those kinds of things. But there's a wide mixed history within Christianity, if you study church history, very wide. But how we deal with this dual citizenship, that is, we're earthly citizens somewhere in the world as Christians, um, and at the same time, we're heavenly citizens. So Martin Luther, one of the, the great reformer, said we have a dual citizenship. So all Christians have dual citizenships. We're citizens of some earthly kingdom, and we're also citizens of the heavenly kingdom. In fact, this is a subject that's a big topic in the book of 1 Peter. So if you are interested in this kind of a, of a topic to discuss, or go to 1 Peter, there's a lot in here. So chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, he's going to go over this and over this and over this, because he even begins the letter talking about the exiles. Why does he do that? Well, in one sense, of course, it's a metaphor for us being, you know, Christians, because we live in this world, this is not our home, and we're looking forward to the kingdom of God coming. But it's also because it's actually literally true of these people. The original recipients, you see, were forced members of Emperor Claudius's colonization plan. You see, emperors come up with these ideas a lot, okay? So the Emperor Claudius decided he wanted to colonize uh, what's now Western Turkey. And so you could volunteer or you could be volunteered 
and you would end up over in Western Turkey. And so you are a part of his colonization plan. Well, a lot of Christians got scooped up in that. And that's who the Apostle Peter is writing to, is these believers that are exiles in the world spiritually, but they're also literal exiles because Claudius has some great idea for their life. And at this point in time, persecution for the church was not, you know, at its worst that we often hear about under the reign of certain emperors. But under Claudius, what was going on in this part of the world at the time was basically social persecution and the, and the government would turn a blind eye to it. And so you get away with doing things to Christians if you didn't like them down the street or you didn't like their, you know, little shop that they were running or their families. You know, you could get away with things and persecuting them. So that's what it was like for these people, the recipients, the original ones of 1 Peter. But this dual citizenship we have is worth a lot of reflection, I think, and prayer and discussion um, by us as Christians because it's always been difficult. And it will always be difficult. It's never going to be easy. And sometimes we tend to think that it should be easy to be a dual citizen of the kingdom of heaven and a kingdom of man. But it's not. It's never been easy. And it's always going to be difficult. And if we can just accept that fact, then it'll be a lot easier to live it out more faithfully. You know, and again, in church history, there have been so many examples on both the negative and the positive side of this, this question. I mean, there, you can go back in church history in certain periods of time and, and you can find Christians, you know, uh, not living this out very well and taking to violent extremes or becoming very hasty in their conclusions of things or just being foolish, uh, using Scripture out of context to further their particular ends or just simply being misguided and maybe misdirected. But at the same time, you know, of course, the secular world wants to focus on all those, but there are also just as many, if not more, positive examples of Christians living it out in humility, with thoughtfulness, with wisdom and intelligence, and engaging the culture, and being faithful to the gospel. So it's my prayer always that we as Christians would select our heroes and our philosophies and our politics very carefully, being spiritually minded. Notice the most important word, Holy. It's not nation. Holy. Holy is the focus. A focus on obedience, again, just like it was in being a chosen race and a royal priesthood, to live this out and to serve our calling faithfully. When you think about it, this concept and this name that we've been given as the new holy nation, as, as God's people, does two things at the same time for us. At one level, it rises us up above worldly politics immediately. And at the same time, it can make us the most politically useful people in the world. It's wonderful when Christians involve themselves for the common good. And again, the purpose is at the end of the verse. So why are we part of this new holy nation that God has created? Is so that we will proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then we get to the fourth term, which is really a summary of the previous three, but we're the new people of God. It's the culmination of those terms. This is the best description, that we belong to God. 
We are people for it. We are his own treasured possession from within and from all the peoples of the world. Some from every people group in the world, God will call to himself, and they are his treasured possession. And we've been called out for a unique relationship with God, a unique purpose in Christ for all eternity. And it's after the pattern of what we see all throughout the Old Covenant in the calling out of Abraham and the calling out of the people from the Exodus and the calling out of the people in the second great Exodus, if you will, out of the exile that they were in to go back to the land. And of course, ultimately in Jesus Christ, the calling out is complete in its fullness. You know, so when we read these passages, for example, in the Old Testament about this great honor, this great purpose of being the people of God, it should remind us of 1 Peter 2. This is how our apostle, Peter, interpreted those passages. It speaks ultimately of all of us who are in Christ. And so when we read those passages, we can fast forward in redemptive history and apply them to ourselves. In Deuteronomy 26, we read, And Yahweh has declared today that you are a people for His treasured possession, as He has promised you, and that you are to keep all His commandments, and that He will set you in praise and in fame and in honor, high above all the nations that He's made, and that you shall be a people holy to Yahweh your God, as He promised. You see, the purpose of the church is declared like from Isaiah 43, 21. That's what the Apostle Peter is referring to. The people whom I have formed for myself, my praise they will declare, it says in Isaiah. And it finds its fulfillment in Christ because, you know, Isaiah himself, the prophet, you read it in context, he wasn't able to get all the praise out because all he could see was returning from exile someday. The praise is completed in the history of redemption and where we are now. And so, the fulfillment of that passage in Isaiah 43 takes place in the new covenant under Christ, and we proclaim the excellencies of God. That's our purpose. And that's where we start almost always when we worship, for example, when we pray, when we do evangelism. It's all about starting out, at least somewhere near the beginning, talking to people, declaring the outstanding qualities of God Himself the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You see, we don't start by talking about ourselves and our problems. We're talking about other people and their problems, whether it's in pity or whether it's in praise. But worship is about declaring the greatness of God. Prayer is really about resting in His excellencies. And evangelism is just simply telling people how great God is. And then you fill in the details, of course, with Jesus Christ and the whole gospel. But our purpose is to proclaim what He has done in calling us out of the sinful darkness that we're all trapped in, naturally, into His marvelous light. It's a much greater exodus, you see, as than the original exodus, much greater, truer exodus than just simply coming back from the exile as the prophets hoped, but it's the full and final exodus, if you will, in Jesus Christ and His light. The light of holiness, the light of knowledge, the light of salvation. These are the things the word light brings to mind in the Bible. Think about being so undeservedly honored to actually belong to God, to be His people. 
I mean, all four of these names actually have one grand purpose. And so I'd like us to reflect upon what's the purpose of Calvary Church? Why do we exist? Why do you exist? Why are you a part of God's people? You see, our new identity obligates us to proclaim His excellencies. So let's briefly look at verse 10 because it tells us to be ever mindful of these new realities. You know, it's so easy to, to skip over them, forget them. In fact, this is such a packed verse. I mean, there's so much in here. But then in verse 10 we read, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's talk a little bit about the prophetic background here. You may or may not know, but basically all the Apostle Peter is doing here is quoting the book of Hosea. That's all he's doing. And he's interpreting it for us in the way he reads it, the way he puts it here. This is God's word to us. And so it's very clearly a reference to Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, among other sections in the book there. And it reveals one of the major themes of the book of Hosea. So I'll just read the Hosea 2 to you. It says, and I will have mercy on no mercy. Uh, by the way, that was actually the name of Hosea's daughter. Yeah, feel sorry for her. Yeah. So I will have mercy on no mercy. But of course, she was named that. Maybe she had other names too that they called her. But, but uh, you know, that was to signify what the northern kingdom had become. Say to her, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I'll have... And I will say to not my people, that was the name of his son, not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So the immediate historical reality that's being referenced back in Hosea chapter 2 verse 23 is fascinating. Because God has basically decided he's going to disown his people because they've decided basically they're just going to be pagans anyway. So why not just let them be the pagans that they are? I mean, they say they believe in Yahweh, but then they believe in all these other false gods. They say that they're going to love him, but they pour out their lusts in the immoralities that are attached to all these other religions. Syncretism does not please God. And so he was abandoning them to basically be who they really wanted to be anyway. But the promise then is that a restoration would eventually take place and the book of Hosea speaks about this in the post-exilic period. In the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And yet the promises of Hosea 2.23 and 1.10 and the whole book, which is all in the mind of the Apostle Peter, right? All of that and why he puts it in here and quotes it is because there's a much further fulfillment. And that fulfillment would happen at the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This prophecy is a further indication of God's purposes among all the peoples of the earth that as we, along with all other prophecies, many other prophecies, that the Gentiles would be included. The other people groups throughout the world would be included in the people of God. And our apostle Peter is making this very clear to us. We make up a part of the new restoration of the people of God. In fact, that can even be seen in the book of 1 Peter very easily. I already mentioned to you that he opens up calling them exiles. Well, you notice how he closes the book 
he talks about Babylon in a cryptic way. Why? Because it's part of the motif of the book. It's part of understanding what he's doing here and understanding who we are as God's people. And in fact, it's not just the Apostle Peter who does this. The Apostle Paul does this in other places. But one further observation and a very good sample is in Romans 9.22. You'll see it here again. And you'll see how the Apostle Paul uh, refers to the book of Hosea. Romans 9.22 and following. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed it says in Hosea. I didn't add the word Hosea. That's in the book of Romans. As indeed it says in Hosea, and he quotes the same two verses. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And he's talking about the Gentiles. And her whom it was said, not beloved, those peoples outside of Israel who just, God let them do their own paganism, I'll call them beloved because you would pursue them. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. I mean, think about the message of the Old Testament prophets, and there's so much more, and how much we can learn about who we are in Christ by reading them for our spiritual benefit, because they all speak about these new realities in the world at the coming of the Messiah. And, you know, this not a people, now the people, it definitely has tremendous implications in the history of redemption as God unfolds his plan. But you know, it also has intense personal application. As the recipients of the letter known as you yourself know about yourself is that at one time, apart from Christ, you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. The not receive mercy, now has received mercy. Yes, that has historical redemptive pur purposes and big implications as we think through theology, but it also has very great personal meaning. To think about that, that at one point in your life, you were not the recipient of God's mercy. He just let you go headlong into your sin. And, decide, and, and at some point, he decides to bestow his mercy on you and save you and grant you forgiveness in Christ. So it's not just big theological concepts, it's very personal. In fact, every one of our conversions to Christ is, is in a way a fulfillment of these very prophecies, the words of the apostle. The mission is being fulfilled as more and more people come to Christ. We've been reborn by God the Father himself into all the promises that we have in Jesus Christ and His Son. So turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And this could be a good take-home verse as well. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It says, Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, so again, that just means anyone who's not Jewish, and there are thousands tens of thousands of people groups that this applies to that we know exist. 
So therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body on the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, we must always remember who we were and what we used to be in order to be able to make the comparison to who God has made us and what we are now. And then further to consider what we're going to be for all eternity. It's by God's doing, His wise purposes, His grace, His mercy that we're now part of His people. So be ever mindful of these new realities, the Apostle Peter is writing. This passage, verses 9 and 10, is all about how we see ourselves and understand our place in God's program of the history of redemption. It'll impact how you see yourself as a Christian. It'll impact how you see the church and how we as Calvary Church are going to move forward. And you know, society is always going to label us differently. They're not going to use those four terms to talk about you that talk about us as the church. They're going to use very different terms, probably very colorful ones sometimes. But, you know, Jesus endured the ridicule and the hostility. So did his apostles, and so will we. Right? And we can go back to this passage, you see. It's part of our strategy for strength. Because this is who we really are. And, we, and we're always going to be persecuted in the world. It's always been that way. It always will be that way until Jesus Christ returns. Then the tables will turn. And we're waiting for that day. But here is where we turn in those difficult times to find our strength and our glory, our dignity as who we are as people in Christ, our purpose in this world, because the world lives for very different purposes, and what our calling is. Our new identity in Christ obligates us to proclaim His excellencies. It's an amazing paragraph of Scripture. It's fully loaded with so much about God's work in the history of redemption, about worship and about missions, about our work together as a church. 
So yes, there are large realities here, but again, there are very personal realities here for us, each of us. I always like to go back and rethink through my own experience in conversion when God saved me on June 10th, 1984. That's 36 years ago now. That's when I joined the people of God, you know. That's when I received mercy. See, before that, I hadn't received mercy. I wasn't part of his people. What's your story? You know, the first application is to retell these mercies just to yourself because, you know, sometimes your soul forgets and so does your brain. And you can retell it to yourself in God's presence and your time with him in the morning. And then you can overflow and tell him how grateful you are. And so it becomes worship. And of course, we must remember that all these names have that one great purpose anyway of declaring His excellencies. Yes, we're a part of who He has made us to be. We are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a people for His own possession. And it's all so that we can declare it as well to the world. And I pray that our further consideration of these verses and our action upon them are going to lead us to become better at proclaiming His excellencies. I think that's the heart desire of every one of us here this morning is to be able to be be better at that and to fulfill our mission as His church, the church of Jesus Christ. It's an exciting future. The future is always exciting, but God always has great plans for us that He doesn't always tell us in advance, but it's fun to walk through them together and see what He does. So let me pray for us, and we'll close out our time in worship together. Lord God, we thank You so much for Your Scripture that you have given to us and that you have preserved the centuries for your church. I want to pray for us here at Calvary this morning. Um, We thank you so much for forming us as a church, and I pray that you would remind us of these, these wonderful realities that your Scripture tells us are true, that we are a part of this chosen race you have been creating, this royal priesthood, this holy nation that is yet to arise when you return, that we really are ultimately just your people that we belong to you, and that is great privilege. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would cause joy to abound in our hearts and that this joy would overflow in giving glory to the Son, to Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that you would make us better worshipers on the one hand and that you would make us better missionaries on the other hand. And we pray these things for your glory in us as your church. Amen.